Welcome to another edition of the Rosenberg Podcast. And as a matter of no uh, accident, this is, of course, the voice of Milt Rosenberg. And you are about to hear the voice of Adam Bello, who is a distinguished uh, publisher, uh, based as all distinguished publishers must be in New York City, unless they're based in Vienna or Paris, um, and is indeed a conservative publisher by self-definition and by the definition of the people who have employed him in that capacity for some years at HarperCollins, as earlier he was employed in similar capacity elsewhere. Indeed, Adam, uh, what is your publishing or your publisher history? Earlier you were at which firms? I started out in publishing. First, Mel, let me thank you for for inviting me on tonight. And it's my um, pleasure. We had a wonderful uh, time some years ago when we discussed on the radio your book on nepotism. Yes, and uh, and that was in the studio in Chicago, and I enjoyed that uh, conversation immensely. Um, and uh, so, I will, let me answer your question. Uh, I have I, I went into publishing after um, knocking around a little bit in my twenties. I was in in uh, in and out of different graduate programs, um, trying to uh, find uh, a uh, a career that. Um, uh, that would engage my intellectual uh, uh, curiosity and interests. I must interrupt and, you to tell you that I'm disappointed or, or fascinated to learn that one of those years was spent in the uh, a program at the University of Chicago, where, to be sure, your father was a professor, and uh, where your father and I lived in separate apartments in the same building, the one that I called Nobel House, because there were <laughs> in it, at peak, some nine Nobel laureates, your father being one of them. Uh, yes, but but you never came to see me. I didn't know you then. No, you didn't. <laughs> I was still in my larval stage, uh, developing. And uh, I'm still in that. I'm still in that apartment house. I should say. <laughs> yes, I. I uh, yeah, I spent a year. I, my my educational background is that I that I was an undergraduate at Princeton University. I majored in uh, in literature, uh, in actually in comparative literature and in, in uh, the Renaissance. Um, uh, epic, and, um, uh, and then I went. Uh, then I worked in uh, journalism for a year or two. I was a I was at the a copy boy. I get the Daily News in New York. Uh, I interned at the Christian Science Monitor, and then I decided that journalism was not for me. I tried my hand at writing fiction. Um, that was not a good idea. Um, with a Nobel Prize winning uh, father in the background, I, I quickly abandoned that attempt, and I went back to graduate school. And I spent a year at the University of Chicago in the Committee on Social Thought, um, taking uh, classes with uh, some of the greatest uh, minds of the 20th century. And indeed, you do seem to acknowledge, or at least you assert at some point, that uh, truly formative influence upon you was exerted by Alan Bloom, whether by, whether by the man himself as teacher or whether by his book or both. Alan was a, was a family friend. He's someone I had known uh, for years. He was a very he was a colleague and friend of my father's uh, at the university, and I got to know him um, first socially. And um, uh, and I had a conversation with him one day, and I said, Alan, you know, I feel that I've neglected. I've I've been a literary. Uh, I was a student of literature all my life, um, but I feel that I've neglected other aspects of my education, history, politics, philosophy. And he said, Oh, come to the University of Chicago. We'll fix that right up. And uh, so I I went to the Committee on Social Thought. I spent a year, and Alan and Saul used to teach uh, jointly uh, a class every quarter. Yes, I remember. Um, yeah. 
it was a wonderful experience. And the two of them would basically, they would just talk. You know, we'd all read a book um, like Henry James' uh, The American Scene, for example. The way they set the course up is that um, uh, each quarter they would either they, they would choose a series of books. Either they would be novels, works of fiction, which would be read philosophically, or they were works of philosophy that would be that would be read as literature. And so this, you know, played to their relative strengths. And uh, really, all we did as students was sit there and take notes while the two of them talked and had a, had a wonderful conversation. Uh, but Alan Bloom was, it's true, someone who was tremendously influential uh, to me. Um, uh, very, very much, uh, as, just as my father was, uh, of course, as much a teacher as a as a father. He he was a uh, a, prof- a profound thinker and and a great influence on me uh, in many ways. And uh, and so was Alan. And I was uh, very much a product of their tutelage. It could one could not summarize uh, the closing of the American mind. Alan Bloom's Bloom's uh, famous book in uh, just a few words. But it is certainly a cry of pain and uh, and despair over the uh, di- diminution of American culture and uh, the cheapening of American culture through Lord knows what process, but as mediated by the media. And uh, this um, surprised everybody uh, as a bestseller. Indeed, you report in one of your articles that the woman who was then heading whatever firm that was that published Bloom's book, I was amazed that it had sold a million copies, but she had no idea whatsoever as to what was in it. Well, that's that's actually that's absolutely right, and I, you know, I had the privilege of of uh, reading the book before it was published. When I was at the time, I was uh, after I left Chicago, I went to Columbia, and I was in the in the history department um, where I was studying. Uh, uh, political uh, theory, modern uh, political history. And um, uh, Alan, who, who wrote the book, um, uh, sitting at my father's uh, kitchen table in Vermont, uh, up all night drinking strong espresso, cups of espresso and chain smoking cigarettes, um, sent the book to me and I read it. And it, was a very, it seemed very familiar to me from, from taking his courses. And it was really about, uh, it was a very complex and interesting book, but basically it was about the, uh, the, uh, the impact uh, of a philosophical current that came from uh, in the 19th century that came uh, came to the U.S. from uh, from Germany, uh, and it was a philosophical materialism uh, that the, to the in, the in the tradition of uh, of uh, Hegel, and uh, and that it uh, in our, Alan's argument was that it completely uh, changed the philosophical. It was in, it was an anathema to the philosophical principles of the American founding, and this is where I began to learn about the 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 drama of ideas, the importance of philosophy. Uh, at the at the root of everything, and I and I and I understood as Alan helped me to see that most people have not really thought about their ideas very carefully at all. They, it, they, it is interesting they, to remember that uh, a book published some fifty years before that, also by a member of the faculty of the University of Chicago, was titled "Ideas Have Consequences," and that's been illustrated again and again in all histories, including our own. That's right, Richard Weaver's famous book. Yeah. Um, and so I read the book and I, and I had a conversation with Alan and I said, Jay, I, you know, Alan, this is very interesting. What do you think is going to happen 
when the book is published. And he said, he laughed, and he said, oh, it'll be just like the trial of Socrates. I'll be accused of disrespecting the gods and corrupting the youth. And he laughed, and I laughed, and I thought, well, that's that's kind of silly and maybe a little bit, you know, grandiose. And uh, then the book was published, and that is exactly what happened. Uh, he was he was attacked and pilloried as um, as uh, uh, undemocratic, someone hostile to democracy, an elitist, uh, philosophical snob, um, and uh, he was compared in the newspaper to Oliver North. Uh, and um, and I saw and I saw you know what I saw um, I saw two things that influenced the course of my life. First, I saw how how powerful um, ideas can be the 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 power of ideas to start uh, to start arguments and uh, immense controversies and to drive uh, sales of a book. Uh, and at the same time, I saw the collapse of the liberal intelligentsia, uh, particularly in New York, uh, into prejudice and intellectual dishonesty. These people did not read Alan Bloom's book with an open mind. They were not interested in debating his ideas. They were certainly not uh, available to to reconsider their own ideas. They treated him like a thought criminal. And uh, if they could have uh, forced him to drink hemlock, they would have. I was about to say the equivalent of hemlock was indeed those cigarettes that he chain-smoked. I saw him doing that many times. Yes, he. I saw him once set himself on fire because he uh, yes. he was smoking a cigarette while while putting on his coat and scarf, and he inadvertently knocked the head of his cigarette off, and it fell into the folds of his scarf, and he was talking, talking in his in his inimitable way, and all of a sudden I saw a plume of smoke starting to rise from his chest, and I said, "Alan, you're on fire," and he started slapping at his at his chest, trying to put out the fire while convulsed with laughter. He was a he was a great character. And as some of your listeners, I know you know, as some of your listeners may know, uh, Alan is the, Alan Bloom was the model for um, Ravelstein. Abe Ravelstein, yes, yes. Uh, the, the hero of one of my father's last books. And, uh, and it's a wonderful, loving uh, portrait of a great man and a great teacher and a great friend. Let me pick up on, uh, there's so much one could do now in pursuit of the many themes that you've already adverted to. But let me pick up on the basic question of liberalism versus conservatism. One of my favorite quotations, I sometimes have used it uh, on the air as a sound clip, is the uh, uh, the British uh, military guard in front of the House of uh, Commons or the House of Lords or whatever, who sings, I often think it comical, fa-la-la, that every boy and every girl that's born into this world alive is either a little liberal or else a little conservative, fa-la-la. <laughs> Uh, and that brings me to uh, a quotation commonly um, uttered by all sorts of people and commonly misquoted uh, and uh, misattributed, and only one version of it. This is the one attributed to Churchill, who was not really the originator of all of this, goes, a man of 25 who is not liberal has no heart. A man of 50 who is... Uh, I'm sorry, a man of 25 who is not liberal has no heart. A man of 50 who is not conservative has no brain. Uh, the fact is there's a transition that lots of people go through. You've gone through it. I have gone through the same. When I was a kid of 25, I surely was a New York Jewish kid by now in the Midwest pursuing graduate studies 
uh, who was standard liberal. I am now considerably older than 50, and I fear uh, that I properly should be classified as, if not standard, at least as neoconservative. And the same is true for you. You you have an article that you did, which I read with uh, considerable interest, and I love the title. I forget exactly how the whole title runs, but you refer to yourself as a former, or is it Confessions of, a Zabar's liberal. Yes, I call it it's my escape from the Zabar's left. Zabar's left. There we go. Yeah. No, that's, but Zabar's lots, lots of your readers may not know what Zabar's is. I happen to have been there a few times. I will. I will be happy to explain. Um, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which, as most people know, is a bastion of of New York liberalism. And uh, this was in the '60s and '70s. And when I was a young man, everybody was a liberal, um, and everything, and everybody agreed about everything. Uh, you know, Nixon was the uh, was the enemy. Uh, the Vietnam was uh, was terrible. America was a racist country, um, uh, and. Uh, um, you know, and uh, and and everything was uh, uh, nothing was really debated. There was no argument about any of these things. Well, wasn't and, that all true? In consensus, there is uh, there is wisdom, right? Well, you know, that's the thing about New York is, that, as as you know, having lived here, New Yorkers are very provincial. There's that famous uh, anecdote about Pauline Kael reacting to the election of Richard Nixon, saying, "You know, how can he be have been elected? Yes. I don't know anyone. No one I know voted for him." Uh, and years later, when I got into conservative into publishing and I began to publish books by conservatives, I, I saw it as my role in in some sense to bring news of reality, that is to say, the outside world and how people think outside of New York. Um, uh, I was bringing news of these uh, alien opinions <clears throat> held by a majority of Americans to the cloistered provincial intellectuals of New York. Uh, and they were not grateful or happy about it. Um, but the the reference to Zabar's is is uh, is uh, is a sort of inside baseball. But um, uh, for those who don't know, Zabar's is a famous um, uh, deli, a Jewish uh, um, uh, deli on the Upper West Side, where you where you, where where Upper West Side liberal Jews go to get their smoked salmon and fillet of. Uh, herring uh, and their bagels and um, uh, and in my experience um, uh, I mean I, I sort of defined the um, uh, the political culture of the Upper West Side as a mentality that I call that I refer to as the Zabar's left yeah. and um, and I think I described it as a as a as an attitude that is uh, that is very arrogant and completely blind to its own prejudices but the food was uh, good but the food was great, yes. and I still shop there, and I still live on the Upper West Side, and I'll be damned if I will allow them to drive to drive me to drive me out because but, I liked. But here's something that too. here's something that I conf- that confounded me as I was googling around. I got a piece, and I don't have it in front of me right now. I don't remember where it was from. I think maybe the the Washington Post, where you are, and the piece published about three years ago, in which uh, the writer refers to you as still a quote Democrat. That is a member of the Democratic Party or or loyal to it, and I that I did not understand. Did you have a, a painful transition in some ways, or a partial transition? Well, that was a reference to the. I, I told her that um, I told her my story, and the story was that I that I started out as a as a liberal, and I registered as a Democrat in 1975 when I turned 18, and um, uh, and then I went to college. Um, 
I believe I've, I think I voted for Jimmy Carter in the first uh, national election in which I voted. And, um, uh, and then I went to college and I was, um, uh, you know, in the, at the end of the seventies, it was a period in which there wasn't a lot of political activism on campus. It was sort of just after the end of the Vietnam war. Um, and, uh, there was a Democrat in office and, there was very little uh, interest in politics, and I myself was not very interested in politics. Uh, and it wasn't until a few years later, when I was out of college and in my mid-20s, uh, during the Reagan presidency, that I began to think seriously about politics. And the thing that really, um, of course, I was influenced by my father, and you, you, know, you, you, you mentioned earlier his trajectory, um, which I followed in my t- in my own time. You know, Saul started out on the left, like everyone uh, he knew, all the Jewish, bright Jewish kids. And Very visible in his voice. first novel. What is it titled? The Victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Dangling Man, actually. Oh, the Dangling novel. Man. Yes. Yeah. And um, but it, like many of these bright Jewish kids, um, he began to uh, have second thoughts about communism. Uh, and um, and began to and you know learned he learned the, some of the crucial lessons of the 20th century, um, and he uh, he made a classic what what I would call a classic neoconservative journey from from left from Trotskyist radical to uh, sort of centrist liberal to Reagan I would say Reagan conservative, and uh, as a Reagan conservative, uh, if one now turns turns to the literature as a reflection of the political controversy of the time. Uh, we see him very clearly in that category in his reactions to what's happening in mass culture. That particularly in his book, Mr. Samler's Planet, and also in uh, The Dean's December, uh, both of which are late works, uh, the ones that immediately precede uh, the Ravelstein book, and uh, that's about it. Well, um, the... Um uh, Mr. Sandler's Planet was published in the was published in the seventies, and it was um, it was the most political of his books to that to that time, and it was a book that chronicled the uh, what he what he felt was the decay of. Uh, of urban civilization, there was, as you, as you recall, there was a tremendous crime wave uh, in um, in the big cities at that time. There had been uh, a decade of riots and assassinations, and um, and a and a and a, and a, uh, a, a uh, an upheaval, a social and cultural upheaval in the 60s. And uh, he, like many of his generation, including Alan Bloom, um, took it rather badly. And, um, you know, of course, I, at the time, was a child of the 60s and was very much in sympathy with the radical movement, um, uh, although he, my father and I did not debate or discuss those matters because I was I was still quite young. Um, but I read Mr. Samuel's Planet when it came out because I was in high school, and I could see that he was uh, that he was writing about uh, real things, social reality, um, and uh, and expressing in his literature, in his in his writing, concerns, social and and political concerns that he expressed to me. Now, by the time uh, you become uh, a um a person in publishing uh, and begin to acquire the power of a publisher and the skills of a publisher, uh, you uh, take on a number of books which were indeed major, one would have to say, neoconservative documents. Uh, The book by Charles Murray and uh, Hernstein, The Bell Curve, is one such. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yet another is Dinesh D'Souza, who's around still publishing rather frequently, Illiberal Education, um, and uh, Jonah Goldberg's uh, Liberal Fascism, which I thought really an excellent and important work. Those are all uh, selected by you, edited by you, and published through imprints, whether one or another publisher, of which you are the director. Yes, I, I, you know, my neoconservative journey began, um, uh, was really, was really sparked. I mean, it began under the influence of my father, who was um, very concerned uh, about, he was very much an anti-communist and, uh, and also a very strong supporter of Israel. And these were classic neoconservative positions, which I, which I shared with him. Um, and it was in the mid eighties that, uh, in, in particular during the period of the Iran Contra scandal, uh, and controversy that I began to move to the right decisively in my, in my politics. And I was particularly, I remember being, being, you know, being, uh, particularly impressed, in fact, by Oliver North, um, and and appalled by the what I thought was the frivolity, the frivolousness of the Democratic Congress in refusing to permit President Reagan to do anything about the Sandinista Revolution. Um, and I had, you know, like everybody else, I had learned in grade school about this thing we call the Monroe Doctrine, uh, which um, uh, which holds that uh, that we have uh, an interest in dominating. Uh, uh, in, 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 in dominating the, the hemisphere, which is to say, you know, making sure that that freedom and democracy and and, and capitalism uh, are uh, are in the ascendant, and the Sandinista Revolution was obviously a, a project of the Cubans and the Soviets, and they were intent they were clearly intent upon spreading their revolution across Central America, and I didn't think that that was something we should permit to happen. Um, and so I began to, uh, this is the sort of the dawning of my political consciousness. And then when I, by the time I, uh, when I turned uh, 29, I got married and my wife got pregnant, had a baby right away. And I, and I had to have a job. So I went to see Irving Kristol, who was, um, you know, the godfather of modern neoconservatism, and I, and a friend of my father's, and I said, Irving, you know, I I have a wife and a baby, and I'm no job. What do you think I should do? And he sent me to see his friend, the the, the legendary publisher and the late publisher Erwin Glickus, who was um, uh, another of these uh, sort of uh, Jewish intellectual neoconservatives. Uh, and uh, Irwin and I hit it off, and he hired me as an editor. And, uh, uh, and that was that was at trade. that was at Free Press. I was, that I was at the Free Press, yeah. which was then a part of Macmillan. <laughs> and I very quickly uh, and Irwin and I had a conversation about what I would do uh, what I would do at the Free Press, and he said to me, "I will." I will publish the uh, the older generation, my own generation. Um, Irwin actually he had a generational theory of of publishing, which I thought was really fascinating. He said editors rise um, along with their generation. Editors are, uh, he said, editors the best editors um, uh, find, discover, and publish the best thinkers and writers of their generation, who they are able to recognize because they share a certain. Uh, uh, attitude towards the world and a sense of you know, values and what is important, and um, and they rise together. And uh, but after a certain point, 
uh, in your career, you need to bring along a younger person uh, to uh, to do the same thing for the members of the next generation. And so that was my that was our relationship. Irwin published the older conservatives, and I published the younger ones. And my first bestseller was Dinesh D'Souza's Illiberal Education. And there have been many other bestsellers since then. And you've become and are generally so accredited. Uh, more or less the leading, quote, conservative publisher, particularly since the transformation of Reagan into something other than a, uh, uh, a firm that maintains a, a certain high standard of literacy, uh, the leading conservative publisher in the country, which brings me at last, as I should have done even sooner, to the immediate point of this conversation, namely a great new publishing venture that you are launched upon, and indeed which you must have conceived, though I know you've got a colleague in all of this operation. It is called Liberty Island, and uh, that uh, is a reference um, essentially to uh, something which is not just a publishing firm with printed pages between hard covers. It is rather very much a presence on the Internet. It's in the digital sector of contemporary reality, uh, subdivision, uh, non-cacophonous <laughs> uh, digital sector. Uh, and um, and non cacophonous reality, in fact, and um, you are now getting into the after a number of other undertakings, which I want to discuss with you instantly. But you're now coming to the point where you will start publishing full-sized uh, fictional books as well, which are somehow stamped with uh, the imprimatur of uh, a conservative book from Bellow. Well, thank you for raising that, and let me tell you um, uh, how this came about. Um, uh, what we've, as, as I've been saying, I, I spent my career as a nonfiction book editor, uh, pub, mostly publishing. I publish general not interest nonfiction, but mostly I'm known for publishing books by intellectual conservatives. Yeah, you could. One could argue you can't have a political novel. There are novels about politics and about politicians. Uh, the parliamentary novels by Trollope, for example, represent that beautifully, as does the work of Ward just more or less in the modern era. But uh, a novel by itself as a work of fiction is not, uh, a, uh, is not an essay in public affairs and in public values. Well, we'll come to that, but I, but I first I want to tell you about how I discovered the, 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 the new conservative counterculture. Yes. Um, because that, uh, that's, an, that's important for your listeners to understand. Um, my, so my story is simply this. I, I, I have been for 25 years a, a, a culture war editor, um, and I get up every morning and I am, in, I am excited and enthused and, and energized because I'm going, to, I'm going to war. I'm not just going to work. Uh, I, go down to, I go down to my office, and, I, and I'm at war with the left, and everything I do is, it has that purpose. Um, and uh, and yet, it's over time. I, be, I, be, I I saw how over 25 years, the how the culture war, the dynamics of the culture war were changing. And while we had been very successful as as a movement in uh, in creating a in opening up space for conservative ideas and in creating indeed a mass market for conservative books with the help of of important figures like Rush Limbaugh. And uh, and Roger Ailes at Fox News and um, even Matt Drudge, um, uh, so that we could we could now so that I could publish books by, you know Sarah Palin for example uh, Sarah Palin's Going Rogue uh, sold two and a half million copies, and that's something that 
you know, couldn't have happened 20 years earlier. But at the same time, I, I, I was uh, aware that uh, it seemed to me that the conservative intellectual, so the, the intellectual side of the conservative uh, publishing movement uh, had sort of reached its peak. We, you know, really, I didn't, I found that we were not persuading anybody. We were, the right wing is talking mostly to itself. The left talks to itself. They have uh, separate um uh, media uh, bubbles that they inhabit, and uh, the big problem for me as a publisher is the d- the difficulty in generating in publishing a book that generates controversy. Um, it used to be that you know books like A Liberal Education or The Real Anita Hill or The Bell Curve. Uh, which I published years ago, would set off, like Alan Bloom's book, would set off a huge national controversy, and that no longer happens, and that is a that is a that is a problem for for all of us in many in many ways. And but just as I am beginning to feel that there's uh, sort of uh, no way out of this dilemma, I discovered that conservatives were beginning to write and publish their own works of fiction. And this is about two or three years ago. Um, it came to my attention, largely through uh, authors of mine who, who were calling me up and saying, hey, I've written a novel. Would you consider it? And I kept having to say to these, I would read their novels, of course, and some of them were some of them were bad and some of them were pretty good, but none of them could be published commercially because there just wasn't a market for them. And I would have to explain that to them. Um, but it kept happening, and I suddenly realized at a certain point that this was a real thing, a real trend. And it stands to reason because it, it was uh, it was inspired and enabled by the emergence of new digital um, technologies that allow people for the first time to write and publish their own books without having to go through the gatekeeping uh, process of uh, of being accepted by the by a major national publisher. And that generates the very special nature of uh, Liberty Island as a location on the internet. And thus we find, in fact, uh, at the Liberty Island site, many, many voices, not only people submitting short stories, uh, either selected by you or they're allowed to come in, even if you haven't selected them, but also responses from readers. It's kind of a, indeed, an Internet community. And I guess that's what you had in mind all along. Well, yes, exactly right. You know, I, what, what I, what I, when I discovered that there were dozens of conservative writers um, who had been inspired and empowered to write and publish their own books, um, I began to think like, you know, like as a publisher does, about how to help them. Um, And it seemed to me that, uh, you know, because I'm very much aware of the difficulty that self-published authors face in trying to uh, to reach an audience, and you know, if you went, if you go to the Amazon website, for example, and you start to poke around, you will find uh, here and there books written by conservatives. Now, I want to be clear about something. Um, most of what the, most of what is being written by conservatives is in the category of genre fiction. We are not talking about the conservative Faulkner or Hemingway. We're talking about writers who we already recognize as uh, as popular fiction writers with a conservative point of view, people like Tom Clancy uh, or Vince Flynn or Brad Thor. Then if, they're, are, if, if they're not Faulkner or Hemingway or, for that matter, Dante or, uh, or Shakespeare or anything, what you're really also saying is that directly politically pointed fiction 
is not done at that level of high literary art. It's popular culture. Yes, there is um, uh, there is a continuum uh, of of uh, literature, a uh, continuum that ranges from uh, from uh, from high from high literature, from you know Ulysses and, uh, and Madame Bovary on the one hand, and are all the way to um, Agatha Christie uh, and um, uh, and James Patterson on the other. You know, there's there are there are books for every taste. Um, and what's wonderful about our literary culture in America is that uh, is that readers can enjoy a full spectrum of novels. The same the same reader who who uh, who enjoys reading uh, Thomas Mann um, uh, will also uh, get pleasure from Elmore Leonard. But tell uh, me, tell me this: in Mann, uh, in um, uh, Shakespeare, uh, in uh, Herman Melville, in uh, uh, I could we could go on naming many many people in uh, George Meredith, uh, in uh, for that matter Jane Austen, uh, just to linger for a moment in one corner of literature, namely British uh, writing. Uh, do we nevertheless still find implicit, if not fully extended and fully elaborated, do we not find values exerted and expressed which can be labeled and located politically? Well, every every student of literature knows that that uh, that that great art uh, is often often includes um, political uh, interests. The writers reflects the, the writer's political sense. Um, this is a, this is a very long-standing reality. One, one good case in point might be Dickens. It occurs to me. Is that right? Dickens is a very good point. Zola is another one. Yeah. Um, uh, these were writers who, in the 19th century, um, engaged. Uh, you know, were ar- their conscience was aroused um, by the liberal movement, uh, and they uh, they wanted they, they wrote uh, social novels that uh, that tried to call attention to the sufferings of the urban poor. Um, that's not all they were doing. Um, uh, Dickens, in particular, was celebrating um, the uh, the, the uh, ga- a gallery of, of uh, national personality types, um, and uh, he's not what we call an ideological writer, um, but but he was he was political in his way. So I mean, I think, um, I, but I want to go back, Milk, because we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. You because you asked me, I want to respond to the question you asked me earlier about about what is Liberty Island and, and what is its purpose, yes, and then we can come back to the politics and the novel. The 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 thing that was that was uh, clearly needed, uh, in my view, was a gathering place for um, for conservative writers of conservative fiction. Um, you know, in in the in the thirties and forty in the forties, my father, who who grew up in Chicago, uh, in cultural isolation, uh, realized that if he wanted to be part of the scene, he had to get on a Greyhound bus and go to Greenwich Village, and that's what he did. And that's when he when he when he reached New York and he joined that community of writers and intellectuals and artists. Uh, that was the making of him. The people that he encountered there helped him develop his talent. Uh, and um, they supported him, they criticized him, they published him, and uh, and he became a great writer as a result. Now, today, 
there is no place like that to go. And particularly for conservatives who have no option, there is no, they're not, they're not, in, they're not invited to, um, they don't, you know, they're, they're not, ex- they, they're, they, they wouldn't be accepted in writing programs, the Iowa Writers Workshop. They, they wouldn't be allowed into the Breadloaf uh, Writers Colony. They're not going to get a Whiting uh, Literary Award for first fiction um, because they're conservative. It's very clear. Um, so, so I had the idea of creating a place, a home for these people. Liberty Island is a is a is a website that serves multiple purposes. It can be it can be found at www.libertyislandmag.com, and it is uh, in one it is a it is a an, ag- an aggregator of of content. It is in, in effect a um, a short story magazine. Uh, it's where we is where we publish the the best of the material that we are submitted. Um, it is also a community hub and a feeder system uh, to for a commercial line of of uh, of novels. Let us underline the uh, location, the address: LibertyIslandMag.com. Uh, is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, now, uh, in order to inaugurate this, so we launched the, the website in, in uh, March of last year, and in July, I published an article in the National Review um, announcing the emergence of a, of a conservative counterculture, not just in, in fiction, but in, in music, popular music, and in video, uh, and in graphics, and, and video games. I, I, I wanted to call attention to this because my late friend, Andrew Breitbart, uh, was always saying that this is what we needed. We needed conservatives, he said, were excluded from the culture. The culture is a very, very powerful repository of ideas. It's a very powerful persuader. And conservatives, uh, he felt, were not adequately represented. Uh, one, one place that you haven't mentioned, one particular medium that you haven't mentioned, where also they're not very well represented, is um, essentially movies and television uh, drama, television series. That is perfectly true. There, there, and conservatives are constantly trying to figure out how to, particularly how to crack the, the the Hollywood nut. How do we get you know into Hollywood? And my argument in the article, and I wrote an article for National Review announcing the emergence of this, uh, you know, the, the that that Breitbart's revolt had come to pass, mm-hmm. and that there that there, this was not something. This wasn't my idea, by the way. I didn't I didn't make it happen. It wasn't my proposal. Um, but I was simply announcing, in a way like John the Baptist, here it is. You know, you conservatives who complain that there isn't enough conservative popular culture to satisfy you, it's actually here, and it's it's uh, and it, but it is at the same time it is just it's very new. It's that the these people. Um, uh, the people who are producing these these books and and records and films and and who are writing film scripts and and uh, who are graphic artists, these are as I said before, these are not people who had the benefit of being uh, admitted to prestigious um, uh, uh, writing programs or going to art schools. They were figuring things out on their own. And the and what they mainly have going uh, for them is their energy, their vigor, their now their, t- their now, inventiveness. Now tell me this: as the social scientoid I was uh, academically for many many years, uh, inevitably uh, the question rises: uh, what's the audience research like? What do we know about how well this is doing and with whom it is doing that well? Well, that's that's the thing. You know, the what I what I the way, this is how this is how I look at it. I know there's a supply, and I believe there's a demand. 
Uh, and because but is the, the is the demand fi- finding the supply? No, that is the big problem. That's what I was. That's what I was trying to say in my article. That there is. Uh, I mean, th- th- as I said earlier in the beginning of our conversation, a, a mass market has been created uh, over twenty or thirty years. That that uh, uh, it, it, for which we publish nonfiction books. We know that conservatives read because they buy a lot of books. I am assuming that they that conservatives will read fiction as much as they will read nonfiction. However, nothing is being written for them in this regard. They, of course, can read a Tom Clancy novel um, or a novel by Brad Thor or Vince Flynn, and these are or, or a novel by Tom Wolfe, uh, who writes in the tradition of. Mm-hmm. Of Zola, he writes, you know, social novels, um, and uh, and these are books that it's sort of interesting to ask, you know, well, in what way are they conservative, you know, um, uh, and I think the answer is, well, it's not that they're writing novels about the Keystone Pipeline uh, or immigration uh, or or any of the things that that you know that the political side of the movement is concerned about. They are they are writing. Genre novels, they're telling stories, they're writing thrillers, uh, they're writing, you know, in the case of Wolf, social novels, uh, they're writing works of entertainment, um, works that are intended to, to, uh, to engage the reader on the level of, of drama, plot, and so forth. You know, it but, occurs to me that one realm within fiction in which a lot of this becomes possible, and indeed inevitably does occur, is science fiction, uh, and all the way from uh, the standard science fiction writers, Asimov, for example, I mean the good ones, but still in popular culture, all the way back, say, to Huxley's Brave New World. We have social values conveyed, and they are essentially uh, uh, values of dismay over which direction modernity is going in. Well, that's quite correct. You know, the the um, uh, part of uh, one of the things that I that I that I still intend to do is to provide uh, a survey of uh, of the new conservative fiction because the the article that I published was uh, although it was warmly embraced by many conservatives was also uh, criticized by some and I think just engendered a certain amount of confusion um, about just what is it that we mean when we when we say when we use the term conservative fiction a lot of people felt that it was somehow a strange uh, and uh, untoward concept and uh, and I think it just needs to be uh, uh, opened up and, and and looked at more more closely because, as you point out, for example, science fiction has long been a genre used by writers, both on left and right, mostly on the left, to explore social and political ideas in the in dramatic form. And this is uh, this goes back to H.G. Wells, who is considered mm-hmm. in some ways the father of modern science fiction, who wrote uh, socialist utopias. He he was openly and nakedly and avowedly promoting socialism uh, by uh, by projecting into the future uh, his vision of a socialist utopia that he wanted to bring about. And he wrote these books in order to in order to advance that that cause. By the way, uh, do you find in uh, major literary works, whether of the modern or pre-modern era or way back to the Renaissance or beyond, back even for that matter to the Greek uh, uh, dramatists, do you find any works that could be clearly uh, cataloged as conservative in their basic social values and as rendering, if only implicitly or indirectly, indirectly the, the conservative argument? 
Well, you know, you have to be a little bit careful with that because, you know, we're t- there's a difference between uh, uh, modern conservatism and modern liberalism, sure. for that to matter, sure. and, and what was considered to be conservative uh, in the 19th century, the 18th century, in, in 5th century Athens. Um, uh, they're different. They're different. Uh, different terms. Different times. Well, but go slow. Be careful. Don't throw away tradition. I guess it's the Burkean ideal that I'm thinking of, as representing what is modern conservatism. And well, do we find anything like that reflected in older works? Well, yes, work, we works do. Works of fiction, and, that is. And I and I I would actually, for anyone who is seriously interested in understanding the relationship between. Uh, Politics and the novel. Um, I would I would refer them to the to the to the magisterial study by Irving Howe called Politics and the Novel. Magisterial, and, but indeed written by a socialist. Written by a socialist, but one who was a very sensitive and deep uh, reader. Somebody who had great respect for the independence of the artist, um, and who was very hesitant to reduce. Uh, any the, the complex work of any great writer to a political ideology. Nevertheless, in his book, he he you will find uh, very sensitive and interesting discussions of Dostoevsky's *The The, the Possessed*, um, of books by Stendhal, Henry James, um, uh, Turgenev, and what he shows. So you know, people like uh, James. So I, so if you ask who are the conservatives in his in his study, I would point primarily to Joseph Conrad and uh, Henry James, uh, who, uh, in whom conservatism is really a temperament. And, um, uh, and their interest is, and particularly on Conrad's part, uh, they were very interested in, uh, an- in the anarchist movement of the 19th century. Um, uh, and they approached, um, they approached radicalism as a literary subject. You know, one of the things that I learned about uh, Literary about the politics of, of of writers from being the son of a writer is that writers do not uh, conform to any ideological uh, stereotype. They are always, uh, if you think of someone like uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, for example, uh, who who we would consider to be a conservative. Why? Because he was an anti-communist. Um, but uh, what kind of an anti-communist is he? Well, he's a he's an anti-communist in the Tolstoyan tradition. In other words, he he is a he's a Christian nationalist. Uh, well, we don't have such things over here, or we don't want them uh, particularly. That wouldn't be a good fit in our political culture. Um, so, and you know, these people are very in in their own ways. They're very eccentric. Um, so, so people who who think that um, that conservative fiction is somehow uh, an, a branch of political of the of the GOP and its political ideology are simply not understanding what uh, you know the relationship, the complex and nuanced relationship between political ideas and and the literary mind. Now, down once again to the present case, that is to say, to Liberty Island, and more broadly to uh, the. Uh, program that you've run for some time at uh, HarperCollins. Uh, you've got some full-length novels uh, that are certain, that are shortly going to appear under the Liberty Island uh, uh, label. Is that right? Yes, this is an independent. This is this is an independent publishing uh, venture. It is not connected in any way with with what I do as a as an editor at HarperCollins, which is where I'm currently employed. Yeah. Um, Liberty Island is my is my own project, and uh, and and we are indeed 
about to launch our line of of commercially published novels. Well, what what, what can you tell us about those novels? What's what's in in the works? Well, we will publish, beginning this month, we will publish a novel every month uh-huh. for the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, and we have, we're launching with, with two books, um, both, of, both of which are quite wonderful uh, and, in their own ways, uh, sort of fascinating test cases in the, uh, in, the, in the debate about what makes a novel conservative. Uh, the, the inaugural book is, is, uh, is called The Big Bang by a writer named Roy M. Griffiths. Uh, it is volume one of a trilogy, uh, which is called The Lonesome George Chronicles, and it is what I would call a post-apocalyptic thriller that explores an alternate timeline, historical timeline, in which America has fallen victim to a, uh, to a coordinated attack by Islamic jihadists and Chinese communists. Um, uh, this attack uh, took place in 2008, when George W. Bush was still president, and the novel is set uh, several years later, um, and it follows. It basically follows uh, the adventures of resi- of several groups of resistance fighters, um, and it is a page-turning thriller. Um, uh, uh, something. It's 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 very very well written, and the thing that. Um, we love about it, in, you know, in, in addition to its being just an extremely good read and, uh, you know, sort of a classic uh, genre fiction uh, uh, mold, is that the author, Roy Griffiths, is someone that you have never heard of and that you never would have heard of because he is someone who has languished in obscurity, writing book after book with absolutely no access to, uh, to the literary uh, world, uh, because no feeder system exists to receive somebody like you mean Roy he, Griffiths. He, he has been published in the past, but not not read much. Is that it? He has been self-published. He self-published. is one of these people. Ah. See, this is what I love about about you know the, the the new conservative fiction. It is it is a labor of love on the part of of people, individual people like you and me, who have decided to who have been inspired by the emergence of new digital self-publishing technologies to go ahead and write and publish their own books. And, uh, and I'm very moved and excited to have, uh, uh, to have made what I consider to be genuine and legitimate discoveries, people who are truly talented and whose books deserve to be published. Uh, and I think what, what people will find when they start to actually read with the sort of the stuff that we're publishing, is that the the politics and the uh, the is sort of uh, is not glaring. It's not there are no long lectures um, such as you get in a novel by Ayn Rand, for example, about economics mm. and political philosophy, yeah. which many people some people can read with it with with interest, but many other people just sort of skip over. Uh, no, these books are are um, are first and foremost entertain, entertaining thick works. Well, give us a give us a quick taste of some of the other things on the uh, on the publishing schedule. I have another. I'd be happy to do that. Um, another. Our next book uh, is in the in a different genre. It's a science fiction novel. Um, written by uh, Frank Fleming, who may be known to some of your listeners. Uh, Frank is a is a, uh, a humor uh, writer who is associated with the uh, Pajamas Media website. Uh, he has a he has a considerable following. I actually have published a couple of his uh, I published a couple of his works here at Harper Collins in digital form, um, uh, and he has turned his 
his talents to writing a, a science fiction novel, um, which is called Super Ego. Uh, and in this book, uh, the central character is uh, a, uh, a, an intergalactic hitman who works for a, for a galactic crime syndicate. Um, and he is uh, he's somebody who has been genetically engineered to be an exceptionally uh, accurate hitman, but what he doesn't have is a soul. He doesn't have a conscience. He doesn't have feelings. He's a psychopath. And uh, but he's a very smooth and successful one. Uh, and in the course of the novel, um, uh, he uh, he in his uh, he gets embroiled in a series of adventures. Uh, he meets a he meets a woman uh, naturally, and um, uh, and he discovers uh, that he's beginning to develop not only feelings for for this uh, for this woman, but also the glimmer of a conscience. And in this regard, I think so, you know, so you you might ask me, well, how is this, you know, what's conservative about that novel? And what's conservative about it is, you know, not that it is, as I said before, not that it has anything to do with the Keystone Pipeline um, uh, or, uh, you know, or how terrible Barack Obama is. It's not about that at all. It's something that addresses a very uh, deep concern with the with the sources of moral conscience and uh, and whether uh, whether one can uh, whether it's innate or whether it can be developed. And you know, that's, cons- a, that's actually in the tradition, is it not, of um, of uh, Karol Kopek or however you say it. That is to say, the robot-like creature which begins to develop not merely consciousness but begins to develop human or humanoid uh, capacities, including ultimately, I suppose, some moral concern. That's a very good analogy. Good. Well, that's that's very that's very well said. Um, uh, so, in addition to those books, and those books will be followed up with um, uh, uh, we have a, a, a murder mystery that's that uh, stars a, a Jewish detective who is interested in, in Kabbalah. We have uh-huh. a uh, that's um, uh, called the Violet Crow. Um, we have a uh, we have a uh, another novel called Tales from the Dark Chamber, which is a Da Vinci Code style thriller that features a secret government agency tasked with fighting occult forces. Um, we have a uh, a rather lovely literary treatment of the story of Jesus as told from the perspective of his dog. Um, it's a beautiful uh, sort of parable that retells a familiar story in a very fresh. Uh, from a fresh perspective, uh, we have a trilogy of uh, steampunk novellas that features uh, a colony of uh, American expatriates who uh, split off from the United States after the Civil War, and uh, their colony, Steampoint, preserves 19th century technology and social values. Uh, and we have many more uh, of this kind, and I'm just trying to give you a flavor of the variety. And you have indeed. The and one interest. The one modern genre that I haven't heard, or at least it's one classic form uh, in literature, but particularly in uh, the last century, is the novel of <clears throat> the sensitive young adolescent uh, somehow dawning into fuller awareness and growth and conquering or indulging or somehow transmuting through sexuality or through sexual interest. Uh, that may or may not be also in the works, but it's yet another common form in contemporary novel writing. Well, you know, I, I, it, it, we don't have one currently on our list, but we are, we are interested in, in, in 
we're interested in books. We just we define how do we you might ask how do we define conservative fiction, and I think the the best the best answer is that we we don't really we 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 are open to publishing anything we like. Um, anything that that holds our interest and that we that we you know, we that we read to the end, uh, because it because it's because it's well written, and it could be um, uh, depending on the genre and the and the and the interest of the writer, it could be a book that is overtly uh, that that has uh, political themes. It could be a novel set in Washington, a classic you know form of the political novel, the Washington novel yeah. Yeah. that deals with politics as a subject. Um, it could be a book that is that has no um, recognizable uh, subject or thematic content that's conservative. It just simply happens to be written by someone who is a conservative, whose work we wish to support. It could also be a work written by someone who's not a conservative at all, but that we feel would be of interest to conservatives. And so it's a very ecumenical program. Um, it's it's completely, as we like to say about our website, completely outrage free. Um, we we don't traffic in uh, in uh, um, political uh, uh, you know we, there's no there's no uh, litmus test um, we don't tell people what to think we we simply are trying to create a community uh, and uh, and an audience for those writers um, so that uh, so that they can. Uh, so they can develop it. They can develop an audience and, and get the support that they need in their early, in their early years when they're developing their craft uh, and learning their trade. Um, and what we expect to happen is that we will, as I said before, we will we will discover uh, the next Tom Clancy, the next Tom Wolf, uh, the next Brad Thor, uh, and very quickly, I might add, we already we've already made. Um, uh, discoveries of this kind, and we're extremely excited and very enthused. And I urge everybody to uh, to visit our site to see, to to check out what we have published there already, and to uh, and to order our novels, and in, indeed, you know, to join our book club, where for a discount you can receive the entire uh, the entire catalog of of novels that we plan to publish this year. You know, as we end, and we end, and we must not only because of our. Uh, a technological situation, but uh, because you've got a dinner date, and I'm afraid I've kept you rather late. But I must end by telling you a story about your father. <clears throat> I had arrived at the University of Chicago coming from Dartmouth College, where I taught for a few years, and met your father. And one day, only three or four months after I got on the faculty at the University of Chicago, I encountered Saul Bellow on the street. He encountered me. He said, you have time for a cup of coffee? I said, sure. We sat down, and uh, there was something he wanted to ask me. What he wanted to know was, how well was his son doing in my class? Not you, but uh, your brother, who la later went on to be a very significant figure in social work, I gather. My uh, older brother, that's right. Exactly. Yes. And uh, that comes to my mind only now. I assured him that uh, he was doing fine. But what comes to mind only now is that if um, your father were to ask me, how well are you doing? I would have to say, splendidly exciting. This is wonderful stuff that he's been doing and that he's up to right now. So with that, we close. And I thank you very much for joining us. 